welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning. Welcome to Awaken. My name is Jess, if we haven't met. Um, and if we haven't met, then this is probably a weird <laughs> introduction. Um, I am dressed as my husband, Brian. He's not here yet, so you can't see the comparison. But my phone won't unlock to my face right now, so I feel like that's a good sign. Um, and I'd like to do the call to worship as my husband. <laughs> um, I'm going to read this morning from a book called Consolations. Um, it goes into kind of different descriptions of everyday words. So today's is silence. So just to help us kind of be present and in the moment with everything going on today. I hope this helps for that. To become deeply silent is not to become still, but to become tidal and seasonal. A coming and going that has its own essential character. A story not fully told, like the background of the sea, or the rain falling, or the river going on, out of sight, out of our lives. Reality met on its own terms demands absolute presence an absolute giving away, an ability to live on equal terms with the fleeting and the eternal, the hardly touchable and the fully possible, a full bodily appearance and disappearance, arrested giving in and giving up, another identity braver, more generous, and more here than the one looking hungrily for the easy, unearned answer. All righty, friends, if you want to find your way back to your seats, that'd be great. Oh, happy Halloween, by the way. We got some Ted Lassos in the house. That's great. I saw, we, what was his, what's the Cure's singer's guy's name? Uh, what is his, what? The Cure, what's the lead singer's name? Robert Smith, we got Robert Smith in the house, you know, if anybody was wondering what that was, that's the Cure lead singer, hello. Um, we got Trunk or Treat, it's going to be great. I got a sermon to preach, I'm excited about that, I'm more excited about that, so let's get to this and then to that, okay? Um, if you're new, welcome to you, my name is Micah, I am one of the pastors here, so glad you're here. We'd love to know that you were here, so if you're interested in letting us know that, go to our website, awakenwest7th.com, there's a button right on the homepage, click I'm new. Fill out that. We'll reach out to you, invite you out to a drink of your choice, get to know you. You can get to know us. It'll be grand. Um, for those that call Awaken Home, a couple things you need, to, you should know about, we want you to know about. Number one, Advent is coming. Ad, like I said, November 28th, we're doing the winter market again, friends. So if you've been a part of that in the past, um, it's going to be ev- so a little different. Instead of one day where everyone comes because of COVID and trying to get you know a reasonable uh, we're going to do four artists or, or folks selling your wares, four per Sunday. So if you're interested in being a part of that, you need to let Mel know, melody at awakenwest7th.com. And if you are interested in purchasing things for Advent, for friends and that kind of thing, those folks, the, their art, uh, what they sell, what they do, will be listed so you kind of know who's going to be there and when. And that will be in the gallery, four Sundays in Advent. It's going to be dynamite. Love it. We got the tree lighting. <laughs> Last year, we bought a 16-foot Christmas tree, and we put it out in the front of the church and lit it up on the kickoff of Advent. I love Advent. It's going to be great. 28th. Um, So, also, this month, 
the missional focus for Awaken uh, is one of our um, friends and partners. We did a, we get a, a grant last year. One of the grants for Advent grants went to the Lift, which is on the east side, helping families, um, community uh, on the east side, um, youth and families. And they are looking to do a Thanksgiving dinner, so we're going to help provide that. So on the 14th and 21st, if you can shop for a Thanksgiving dinner, bring those things on the 14th and 21st. Our friends at the Lift will deliver them to families in, uh, in their neighborhood. Um, and the list of items you can, per- you, you can purchase is on the website and in the Awaken Weekly. And then last but not least, there's an artist mingle. This Thursday, 7 to 9, that's happening here. It has been determined. Um, so... If you're interested, uh, Mel leads that for artists, creative folks. It's a good time. It's just a mingle, friends. It's just a mingle. You know, it's kind of like it's just lunch. It's just a mingle. Okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to it here today. We're we're in week three of a series called Faith and Doubt. We've been exploring um, the spiritual journey. So week one, we did a we looked at uh, kind of a, a way to understand the spiritual journey. It's not the only one. It's just one that helps us. It's on the screen behind me here. If you want to throw that up, good. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony. So if you think about the movement of the spiritual journey along the way, there are some very predictable and common places where people find themselves for seasons at a time. This is helpful for us because it helps us make sense of our own journey. It helps us make sense of other people. Um, And we talked about transcending, growing, becoming, and including, right? Uh, This is is one of the only ways we can be compassionate to ourselves as we grow and become, but also to others as they grow and become. Uh, and we talked about doubt as the doorway and the dance partner to faith. Um, doubt and questions are just going to be a part of faith. Unless we're after certainty, then, then at some point, doubt and questions are no longer necessary because we're certain and we, do, we have nothing else to learn. But that's not what we're after, and that's not faith. That's not the spiritual life. And we all know it. We're just, we're just going to say it out loud. So um, dance as a, or doubt is a doorway and a dance partner. Last week, we looked at Nicodemus. Great guy in this book of John, three different times. Nicodemus starts in the dark. He comes to Jesus in the dark. A seed of doubt is, is sown. Uh, he lets that linger and, and, and sort of marinate. And then he shows up in the next episode uh, where he's advocating for Jesus with a great question to his colleagues, actually. Stands up again, you know, to them. And then at the end of the story, he's found at the cross. Uh, seeing Jesus for who he is in some ways. Uh, buys 75 pounds of spices, way more than he needs because he thinks Jesus is really the king. He thinks he's who he said he was. This week, Thomas. One of the most famous doubters in all the Bible, actually. Doubting Thomas. So, um, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 20, I'll ask Jeremy, my friend. uh, Jeremy's going to read the text, starting in verse 19. So, if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Would you pray with me? God, this morning as we gather in this place, uh, we do so with uh, a whole host of reasons and uh, amount of or lack thereof of faith. Uh, I trust and believe that it all belongs somehow in your economy that you are working and in our midst. And so um, I pray that you would knock and uh, make yourself known and present to us. And to the degree that we can, God, we say, uh, here I am. We pray in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. And the church said together, amen. You may be seated. Um, I'd like to make a few observations about this text, this story, four of them to be exact, unless the Spirit starts moving. But that's not going to happen because we got trunk or treat. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, Four observations about this text, and I'd like to ask some questions. Um, You know, after all, it's a series called Faith and Doubt, Uh, so we're we're interested in questions and doubt and wondering. So, uh, the first observation I'd like to make is that verses 19 to 22 and 24 to 29, really 26 to 29, are mirrors. They're like almost just the same story. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Like, I've read this passage, you know, Doubting Thomas. People know who Doubting Thomas is, and you know that, oh, unless I see Jesus' hands in his side, I won't believe. We know the story, but as I studied it, the more I read it, the more I realized, like, oh my gosh, it's almost exactly the same. So uh, on the left here is the first part, on the right is the second part. So in the red at the top, we have on the evening of the first week, right, the disciples met with Jesus. Uh, a week later, the disciples were in the house again. So it's like same same scenario, just a week later. Uh, In the blue there, we have the disciples were there, doors are locked, and Jesus comes in through locked doors and says, peace be with you. Same thing happens to Thomas. Through the doors, doors are locked, Jesus comes in, peace be with you. And then, this is a kicker, never noticed this. What What happens to the disciples? After this, he shows them his hands and his side, and they were overjoyed. He proves to them the same thing he does with Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, see my side, put it in my side. Stopped out and you believe. And then the last part, he, uh, he has an interaction with the disciples. He tells them something, and he does the same with Thomas on that side. Um, somehow with all the talk about Thomas, it never dawned on me that Jesus gives the same exact proof to the disciples who were in the locked room. Uh, the only difference in the story really being that Thomas voices his doubts. He says them out loud, or at least John says that he says them out loud. Keep that in mind, by the way. John's the same author who, you know, is hell-bent on telling us that he's the beloved disciple and that he was faster than Peter. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. John tells us that this is what happened and this is what Thomas did and said. There was a historical moment, an account, an actual event, and then there is John's telling of the story and Luke's and Mark's and Matthew's, right? So we have to account for the storyteller. But either way, John tells us that... um, Thomas says his doubts out loud. He speaks them. And he's the only one that makes a declaration about Jesus' lordship and divinity, right? Um, 
when I study the Bible and I teach on Sundays, there's, you know, I get books open and I read things and I'm looking on, online and I find what I think is the most important things and I bring them back to you. And every now and again, I just can't bring it all. And this next part, I found this this week and I was just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? This is so cool. And it's not like super connected to this story or what I want to say, like my observations, but I just couldn't pass it up. So you'll have to go with me on this little journey. John in chapter 20 gives like two windows into the same story, right? The doubting, or, or the, Jesus is going through locked doors, presenting himself to the disciples, showing his hands in his, in his side, and then, you know, offering them this, uh, a word for each of them. Same, basically the same story. I was like, does John ever do that anywhere else? Because it, it just dawned on me that it's almost the same exact thing. Well, lo and behold, friends, he does. John chapter 1. Does anybody remember how it begins? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's called the prologue of John. John's narration of the Jesus story doesn't actually start until verse 19. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 is all prologue, and it just so happens that he does the same exact thing as an author. He takes, he's trying to tell us about the story of Jesus. It's about to happen, so if, here's the introduction of all the things I could say about Jesus. Here's what I want to say, and he does the same story or the same thing through two different lenses. Verses 1 to 14, it's the story of creation. It's Genesis chapter 1. He even uses the same intro, in the beginning. And then he goes on to talk about light and darkness and the spirit hovering and all these other things. And you're like, oh my gosh, I think I've heard this story before. And actually, in those two panels, there are six, three on each side, things that John talks about. I wrote this down. I had it somewhere. Where did it go? Here it is. I couldn't fit it in my notes, and I, I, so I wrote it down on another page. In the first one, there's creation by the word. There's light and life, verses 3 to 5. And then John, the witness of John the Baptist, and then it's the word was rejected, and some received it, and some didn't. That's the first part of John 1, the prologue, 1 through 14. Then he switches lenses, and he tells the same story because you're like, he mentions John the Baptist twice in the prologue, and if anybody reads that, you're kind of like, John's important, but he's not that important. If you have, like, this is, this is what you want to say about Jesus as you introduce him, and you're going to mention John twice. Why? Well, because he's doing this, right? So, Genesis chapter 1, creation. Genesis, uh, the second panel is the Exodus and the tabernacle. And he talks about the word became flesh and dwelt among us, friends. That's right, dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacle in, in Hebrew. And, it were, and, there, and we saw the glory of the Lord, right? You remember when Moses went up on the mountain, he saw the glory of the Lord, right? And he tabernacled, it's the Exodus. So two different stories, or two different lenses, same story. John does it here. And I would, if I wasn't fishing all week, I would have studied John 20 more, and I would have gone in this direction. <laughs> That's just the brutal honest, Okay. Got, got up north, did a little steelheading, but I was like, man, that is so cool. Some people say the Bible's boring and it doesn't have, it's like, it's, from a literary perspective, it's pretty wild sometimes. And when you find things like that, you think to yourself, that's actually pretty cool. So if you're interested in the Bible, I would encourage you, like, look this one, study it a little more. Go to John 20, look at the story of Thomas, and see if there aren't some, I think if you dig a little bit, you find some nuggets that might be worth, little savory nuggets there, all right? Observation number one. Observation number two, Jesus goes through locked doors. In both stories, this happens. We only know that Thomas has doubts and questions because John tells us. We don't know what the other disciples are thinking and feeling in that other room, but it remains that Jesus does the same thing to each gathered group, right? He presents himself, hands, side. 
which leads me to believe that the whole lot was in the same boat. I mean, think about it. If you're a disciple, there's 12 of you. You've been running around Galilee with Jesus for three years. He's teaching you. You think he's going to restore Israel. You think he's going to take over Jerusalem. You think he's going to send the Romans packing. He's going to be the king on the throne, and you're going to be in the court. right? That's what they thought was going to happen. And then he's dead. Like, dead, dead. On a cross, dead. And you're like, that was a waste of time. Like three years, we followed this guy around, and now he's, he's dead. If you're in a room, 11 of you, what are the things you're talking about two days after the, the, the death of Jesus, before he's resurrected and shows up? I have to imagine you're thinking to yourself, how on earth did we get here? How did this happen? Why did this happen? Who was Jesus anyways? You're asking a lot of questions, and I'm guessing doubting a lot of the last three years of your life. I think they're all in the same lot. And Jesus comes through locked doors in both cases and presents himself to the disciples and to Thomas. So let's just pause and slow down for a second. That's a story 2,000 years ago. Today it's 2021. Metaphorically speaking, I just want to ask a couple of questions that have to do with doors being locked like what are the locked doors in this room what are the what are the places in our hearts that we are unwilling to give access to the divine for whatever reason what are the locked doors present here are there I mean, maybe your experience in church leaves you, you know, like that little one. I've had it. Maybe there was a situation, maybe there was some experience you've had along the way with religion or Jesus or people that represented either of them, and you're just like, locked door. Or maybe it doesn't have to do with religion. Maybe it's something else. And I just wonder... What would you need to see, hear, or experience to believe that Jesus is who he said he was? What would it take? Again, I truly believe, and maybe if you have a hard time believing, you can, you can draft off of my belief. I really truly believe that Jesus is the kind of person who would do exactly that today. That he would do anything and everything in his power to present himself as true and authentic and real to you. If you were willing. I don't believe love is, is forced upon us. Otherwise, it's not, if it's not a choice, it's not love. So the metaphor breaks down a little bit there. I get it. But is there any space in your heart where you've been real protective of? And I wonder if Jesus is who he said he was and is still the same today. Maybe even just put yourself in a different spot in the story. What length would you go to to show your love to someone who doubted it? Who had questions about it? So what are your doubts? What are your questions? What are the doors that maybe are a little stuck closed. Jesus seems to be the kind of person who 
We'll do anything necessary. And I believe that that's still true. The third observation um, is Thomas's response, which is my Lord and my God, which could be a throwaway, right? You know, Lord, God, it gets thrown around all the time in the Bible. You're like, okay, big deal. But if you knew a little bit about Roman history, this would make a little bit more sense. And maybe you already do, so bear with me for a moment while I fill in those who maybe don't. Um, the Bible was written when Rome was in, in power. So the empire, uh, the Roman Empire, you know, all across the ancient world, and um, it became, it went from a republic to an empire right around the time Jesus is born. So Caesar Augustus is the first emperor of Rome. Uh, here's a list of a number of emperors of Rome, starting with Caesar Augustus, right before Jesus is born, all the way down to Domitian, when John wrote his gospel in about 90 AD, okay? You probably recognize Augustus. Caesar Augustus issued the decree that Luke starts his gospel with, that a census should be taken. Maybe you notice uh, Caligula and Nero. These guys were notoriously brutal. They killed all kinds of people who opposed the empire, and particularly Christians. Nero used to light his gardens with Christians who were dipped in wax. Sorry, kids. Um, uh, you know, all the way down to Domitian. What you, what you maybe don't know about Domitian was he was particularly interested in the emperor cult or emperor worship. So that was essentially this, this belief among Rome and the empire that the Caesars were divine, which came from Julius Caesar, Augustus's father, who when, 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 when he was killed, believed to ascend to the gods and was a sort of um, uh, imputed divinity. And so we believed Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar was a god, and so Augustus was the son of God, which is interesting because that's happening right about the time when Jesus is born, another sermon for another day. It is really quite interesting. Domitian was, for a whole bunch of different reasons, very interested in emperor worship. History tells us that in towns across the empire, when you offered sacrifices, you had to offer them to the empire, and in particular to the emperor, Domitian. And when you did, you were asked to say, guess what? My Lord and my God. So if perchance, which was essentially a declaration of allegiance and loyalty to the, to the empire, to Rome, to Domitian, who you believe to be a god. And so when John tells us that Thomas says, my Lord and my God, it's not a throwaway. It's actually pretty profound because you can get dead for that kind of thing real fast. So a couple of things to note about that moment. Uh, number one, if we can get rid of that. Uh, I love the fact that it is Thomas, the guy with the doubts and the questions, who offers the first full-throated declaration of divinity and lordship of Jesus in the story of the gospel. It's Thomas. He's the first one. Mary finds him in the garden, says, my lord. But even that, Mary Magdalene, a woman of ill repute, right? Not, uh, not a, a character witness, <laughs> right? In a, in, a, in a case. And yet she's the first eyewitness. It's just bonkers. It fits my whole thing. I love the fact that the Bible... Think about religious history. Like People in religious history have been like grabbing for power for all of it. Uh, and yet, the Bible seems to contradict and offer a critique to that move time and time and time and time again. It's the outsider. It's the outcast. It's the lowly. It's the humble. It's the prostitute. It's the shepherd. It's Hagar, the Egyptian slave. It's Thomas. They're the ones that keep the story going forward. So like over and over and over again, don't ever forget this about the Bible. This is a story that continually 
not just allows space at the table for the outsider, but actually they're the ones telling the story. They're the ones who are, they're the heralds, the shepherds. They heard from, they saw the angels. I just love that. If you're going to like convince a group of people in the ancient world like that this happened, that this is who Jesus was, that he died and was resurrected, these are all the wrong people to get on the witness stand unless it's really true. So there's that. <laughs> Thomas, the first one to say in the story, my Lord and my God, the doubter. That gives me great hope. Uh, and then secondly, despite the consequence, he could have gotten killed for that. Um, for many in this room, pastors stand on a platform or every Sunday and they teach the congregations that they're pastors in. And it's always said, like, know your context. So I'd like to think that I, I know some of you and I've been here long enough to get the sense of, like, what's going on in the room here. For many of us, myself included, have a hard time with people or uh, groups of people who have spoken on behalf of the church or Jesus who really have lived lives contrary to that message, right? Are you tracking with me? Smelling what I'm putting down here? Uh, and, and I think the common response to that reality that um, Those who represent Jesus in the church are often at odds with who Jesus is in the Bible. The, 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 the common response is like this. And we back away from the church. Because we don't want to be associated with that or them. Whoever that or them is. Right? That's fair. I said last week that anybody can tear something apart. Cynicism is easy. Building something worthy of inhabiting or gazing upon is hard work. So I want to invite you, the church, to the hard work. Yeah, it's true. There are a whole bunch of people out there who have represented Jesus and Christianity and who have done a very job doing it. That's true. And, and I've probably been a part of it, and so have you. Fair. Okay? Can I invite you to maybe stand with Thomas here? My Lord and my God, a full-throated declaration of allegiance, and I'm with him. Instead of us as the church awakened backing up, can we actually take a step forward into the story and cast our lot with this Jesus and then attempt to live lives that are so compelling and so in line with the Jesus that we see in the scriptures? People don't say, I hate those Christians and everything they represent when they see you, but they say, that is a very peculiar life. That is a very curious, like, what, what, why do they sacrifice themselves at cost over and over again? Why do they forgive their enemies? Why do they seem to bring in the outsiders and the, and the outcasts? And, like, what is it about these people? Can we double down instead of critique and actually start building a faith that is compelling and beautiful, almost as if we were interested in good news going out into the world? Can I get an amen on that one? I'd like to be that kind of church and invite us to be that kind of church, Yeah? So let's do that. My Lord and my God. Last observation. Did you notice that Jesus says something multiple times? Peace be with you. He says it three different times in the passage. <laughs> I love when this happens. Literally just yesterday. 
Uh, I was fishing this week. Laura uh, got to go to with yoga, you know, morning, doing some things that were enjoyable. Not the eyes dilated piece. That was a, you know, whatever. But point being, Laura was gone. The girl, kids were home. I was home. And I was like, all right, we're doing this. We got things to do. The dog has been going to the bathroom outside, in case you didn't notice. There are leaves in the yard. We got laundry to do. We got dishes to do. We got a number of things to do. And if these things don't get done, your Halloween plans, out. Friends, you got to have leverage. <laughs> like, don't go to a gunfight without a weapon, okay? You're going to die. So I said, hey, if, you, if we don't do these things, I, I texted all the lists to them, right, before they were awake. And then one of them wakes up, and I texted him again, like, hey, just in case you didn't see the text, a few things that need to get done. Crickets, nothing happens. Both of them wake up. Hey, just in case uh, you haven't read the text twice, uh, here's a few things. And they said, Dad, we get it. We're not deaf. I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe you should respond when somebody says something to you. <laughs> so then they know you're not deaf. The point is... <laughs> I was really committed to this cause, and so I repeated myself multiple times so that they got it. Jesus says, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you, as if he really wants you to know peace is yours to have. So if you're here this morning, I just have a couple of questions as we close. What is getting in the way of you experiencing peace? Peace is not just the absence of war or conflict. In the Bible, it's bigger than that. One author says it's universal, wholeness, flourishing, and delight. Shalom. What is in the way of you experiencing shalom? What's distracting you from peace? Jesus seems to be really, really clear that he wants you to know it's, it's on tap and you can get drunk on it. Like, just keep drinking it. It doesn't run out. Peace. Be with you. Peace. So what is in the way of you experiencing peace? Another question I think is really important for us to ask that we don't often ask as American Western Christians is what does your peace have to do with your neighbor's peace? Because if your peace doesn't include your neighbor, I would argue it's not the vision that the Bible has for peace. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, we are. So my peace, my shalom, if it costs my neighbor peace, there's a good chance it's not the peace Jesus is talking about. So how do we, if peace is ours, what does it mean for us as a community, as a neighborhood, as a society to experience peace? Jesus seems to be about that, and I would argue that those who follow Jesus could also be about that. So what does my peace have to do with my neighbor's peace? As we close this morning, friends, it's a great story. Thomas the Doubter. The one who has the guts to name it, say it out loud, is the one who is the first to confess out loud. Jesus comes through locked doors. Whatever, it, whatever barriers are there, Jesus makes its way through, his way through, and offers peace be with you. So, 
I guess my final question to you is, if any of that is true, what would you say to that Jesus if you were standing in this room saying, peace be with you? Thomas says, my Lord and my God, what would you say? Let's pray. God, as we take a moment to be still and quiet, even with the sounds of life happening around us, we rest our hearts and minds for just a bit of time to hear what the Spirit might be saying to us. So Holy Spirit, do your work. Speak. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.